of today's sermon text will be in Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against its me- it, the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great sin- a city, three days' journey in, in breadth. Jonah began to go to the, into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and, uh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by decree of the king and its nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Taste anything. Let them be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from violence. That is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and, re- and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what, what, they, had, what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had, he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray again just briefly. Father, we realize this morning that apart from Christ, we have no hope that we come here together and contrive ways to stir our emotions, to encourage one another, even to try to be better people. And yet we have no hope apart from Christ. So help us to meditate today, not only on that hope, but on our precious privilege of being your instruments. Instruments that were dead in sins but are now alive in Christ. Instruments whom you graciously use and empower to preach and proclaim your truth about yourself, about men, women, and boys and girls. May your word be magnified today. May hearts be broken and pierced transform Father we do pray for places in our region that have been affected by storms, tornadoes things of that nature in the past few days pray that you would bring healing to those places some places who are gathering to worship in parking lots this morning Would you remind them that you are still on your throne, that you're in control, that you're working all things even when we don't understand for for our good and for your glory or your children. And help us to love and serve one another well so as to show the world what kind of God you are. I just pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin my sermon today with an excerpt from someone else's sermon. I'll tell you about where that sermon came from in just a moment. But just a little bit of this sermon. 
who was preached some time ago. The God that holds you over, <coughs> excuse me, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet, it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night, that you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there's none other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. There is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. And later on, the sermon concludes, therefore let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not beyond you. Escape to the mountain lest you be consumed. So that excerpt is from probably the most famous message that was preached on American soil by perhaps the most famous preacher, Jonathan Edwards, July the 8th, 1741. Sermon entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he preached it at the ch a church in Edinfield. Enfield. Uh, it was a church that was known for being hard-hearted. And I'm sure he preached with some emotion, but not the type of emotion that we might think of. No yelling, no animation. And yet God used one very ordinary man and one small piece of his word. His only sermon text was Deuteronomy 32, 35. Their feet shall slide in due time. Just a piece of God's word. He used that to cause men and women and boys and girls to cry out for him in salvation. And so did you kiss that? God used them. And so if we look at this text today in Jonah 3, we're going to hopefully see some of ourselves in Jonah today. And we're going to hopefully be compelled to, compelled to proclaim the truth of God, about God, about man, about Christ, about the response and its consequences. But I want you to understand me from the beginning. This is not a you need to try harder kind of sermon. By grace, we who are in Christ have been saved. And by grace, we will grow in our obedience to Jesus' commands to, to go and make disciples. We've seen pictured today. I want to remind us of what we're going to 
see again today. We're going to see God is, is sovereign over salvation. God is sovereign over evangelism. And that God works through his word. He, he's using his imperfect, even rebellious children, but he works through his word. And so if I had to put this passage in a sentence, I would say this. God displays his grace and power to change the hearts of men by using his people to proclaim his word. God displays his grace. He displays his power to change the hearts of men by using his people to proclaim his words. Chapter 3, in many ways, kind of parallels chapter 1. Chapter 1, we saw this call. The call comes and Jonah flees. And the question is, what's going to happen to Jonah? Chapter 3, the call comes and Jonah complies. And the question becomes, what's going to happen to Nineveh? And then we see this proclamation. In chapter 1, Jonah makes a proclamation to the sailors. And what happens? They turn to God and plead for mercy. Chapter 3, he makes a proclamation to the, to the Ninevites. And how do they respond? They turn to God in repentance and plead for mercy. In chapter 1, God saves the sailors and they cry out to God. Chapter 2, God saves Jonah and he cries out to God. And when we ended last week, the great fish has spat Jonah out at God's command. Remember how we talked about that at the end. All of creation is obeying God's every command, and yet man is rebelling against his command. This man is. So for some history and context, Nimrod was Noah's great-grandson. Genesis chapter 10, verses 11 and 12 tell us that uh, he built these cities, and after he built Babel and some other cities, Nimrod built a region that was really called Nineveh. It included this proper city of Nineveh, you might say. It is included a city called Kala and, and possibly some other cities. So Nineveh was, Nineveh was about 550 miles from Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom in modern-day Iraq. It was bordered by a couple of rivers, and it had a, a mountain range that was on one side of it. So most of the city had kind of natural fortresses around it. It was a good place to build a powerful city, and they could do what they wanted to do there. So two things about this city that we see. It was a, a great city for some of the reasons that I mentioned already and more that we're going to mention later, but at its core because God said that great city. This is a city that God cared about. And God in his divine plan wanted to reach Nineveh with the truth about himself. And secondly, about this city, it's a reminder from chapter 1, it was a wicked city, an evil city. It was known for, uh, uh, Matthew let us know about that in the introduction, but it, it was known for dismembering people and, and many things that we cannot even speak of, unspeakable displays of cruelty and instead of simply destroying this city God in his compassion has chosen to give Nineveh a second chance and commission he commissions Jonah to go there I want us to see and then apply really four things from Jonah today the first is is a gracious and a merciful call to go you see that in these first three verses the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying Rise and go to Nineveh, that great city, 
and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. It's a gracious and merciful call for Nineveh because of the, the wickedness that we've already mentioned, but it's also gracious and merciful because God is giving second chances. He's giving Jonah a second opportunity. If we compare this to 1-1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Those words are identical, but then in chapter 3, we get this second time, and, and I'm encouraged today, and I want to encourage you that, that, that God gives us second chances. I'm so thankful for, that his mercies are new every day and he gives second chances. We see that is his nature. This is not an isolated incident. Remember the Old Testament. Abraham twice, twice lies about who Sarah is. Once he, he lies in Egypt saying she's his sister and another time he lies to Abimelech um, in, in Genesis chapter 20. Jacob, Jacob lies about his birthright and God doesn't write him off. He gives him a second chance because God is working out his plan. David committed adultery and consequently was implicit in committing murder and God sent Nathan to confront him and God does not end his usefulness of David in the moment. God gives him a second chance. And then the well, if we move to the New Testament, the, the well, well-known example of, of second chances of Peter. Peter denies Jesus three times. You remember that the, the third time he did that with cursing. I don't even know this certain, certain person. And yet Jesus restores him. He's giving people second chances because that's his gracious nature. And why? Because he wants to use us. So last week we said that we know God could have chosen to be done with Jonah, but he didn't. And now Jonah has this privilege of going to, to what God himself calls that great city. He's sending him there for a purpose. The inner wall of the city was 100 feet high. It was about 50 feet wide. And it was about seven and a half miles circumference. So if, if we're doing numbers here, we're thinking, well, wait a minute. We, we says, the, the word says this is three days journey. But for some of these guys who are runners, that's probably about a 40-minute journey, right? Not me. I'd probably be more in the three-day category. But what the writer is talking about most likely here is that it would take you three days really to experience this city because that's the kind of city it was. So greatness in that city. Um, so Jonah is referring here to that, and, and what a privilege. Chapter 4 is going to tell us that it was a city of, of over 120,000, and Jonah obeyed. And I don't want to miss that, because we know a little bit about what's going to happen. We'll hear more about this next week, but his obedience wasn't perfect. He, he did not have a pure heart, but he did obey. He still had a choice. He could have gone back to, to Joppa and tried to catch another boat to Tarshish, but no, he obeyed. We know that he's still battling pride and prejudice, and he's about to walk into a city where he himself could be cruelly destroyed, and yet he's been reminded of the great God who is sovereign, and he goes. And this... Um, Chapter 4 is going to give us the great number of people who we know turn from their, their wickedness. And so there's, there's no greater privilege than to give your life for things that will be eternal. I want us to, 
to think about that day. Some people God is calling into some vocational ministry of some type or another. We're going to hear from the Smiths a little later. They've given their lives to, to going to a faraway place to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. But listen to me. All of us, whatever our calling is in our, in our workplace of life, should be investing ourselves into eternal things. There's no greater purpose that we could have. So many people give their lives for things that will, will pass away, and yet you and I who are in Christ have this undeserved commission, this undeserved privilege of dealing with eternal things. We have the eternal good news of Jesus Christ. Well, not only did Jonah have this gracious and merciful call to go, but he had this clear message to proclaim. Verse 4, Jonah, goes, uh, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. Think about this. He's going to a city he's never been to. And God has said, go and preach the message that I give you. He's got to figure out where he's going to do that from, Right? And so he goes into the city and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So, so here's what we're going to see here. Very normal means. A man who does not have his, all, all of his heart in what he's doing. A man who is going to a city that he's never been to. A man who uh, is going to a city that is his enemy and a man who is probably not in the best physical shape of his life, he's been in, in, the, in the belly of a fish for three days. But he proclaims this message that God gives him, and it gives this extremely unusual result. What does he say? You'll be overthrown. It's the same word that was used in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, but this word also here can mean, the word overthrown in Hebrew can mean a change of heart. So what God is saying is, in 40 days, something is going to happen. And he's, he's using um, urgency here to, to drive them to repentance. So, so here's the message. God's going to do something. Either you're going to be annihilated or your hearts are going to be changed and people will be saved. And so it's, it's interesting that God uses the simple proclaiming of his word to do the unthinkable really the unbelievable here this city with its wickedness and evilness is about as far away from God as you can imagine and one man goes in and preaches one message and God uses that to turn this city to repentance so let me ask you a question if God gave you the assignment today to say I want you to turn a nation to him what would you do how would you do that if he gave us a trace, what would we do? Here, here would be the temptation to get some kind of steering committee and put some kind of uh, rent the best place we could do and, for that and, we, and create a buzz and, and, and get the best music people. And, but what I want us to, to see today is that God is always using the preaching of his word to turn people around. The proclaiming of his word, the telling of the gospel. God always uses the preaching of his word so that people are going to be saved. Paul tells us this, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And if you know Christ, if you're in the family of Christ, that power 
lives within you. You have that message. Paul goes on to say in Romans 10, verses 14, in the first part of chapter, uh, verse 15, uh, but how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how will they preach unless they are sent? So here's the reminder. You, believer, you're sent. I want you to go back to that baptism. Uh, that's uh, an important passage when it comes to baptism. It is some of Jesus' last words before his essentials. All power in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Who was he talking to? He was talking to his followers. All of his followers. So if we're in the family of God, we have this command, we have this commission, this unearned commission to go and make disciples and to proclaim this clear message. It's interesting here that Jonah's message is only five words in Hebrews. Five words. We know he probably expounded on those words. He probably explained what he was saying. But the core of his message was a simple five words. So think about how simple the gospel is. Think about how simple it is. God is holy. We are sinful. God sent Christ to pay for our sins. He, he took our sin upon himself. He conquered death. He rose from the grave. If you put your hope in Christ, he will save you. It's a simple message, just like what Jonah preaches here. Uh, verse 5 tells us that the Ninevites believe God. It's the same word as, as Moses writes in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. When he says Abraham believed God, and what comes after that, it was counted to him as righteousness. <laughs> was the whole city saved? Well, I want us to look at something. Uh, this is Matthew chapter 12. We looked at this briefly last week, but I want to look at it a little bit later in this passage. Matthew ch chapter 12, uh, verse, we'll just read it again, beginning in verse 38 about this sign of Jonah. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was, in the, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then listen to verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is referring to himself as he talks to these, these religious people. And so undoubtedly some of these people were truly saved. Jesus is telling us that at the very least some of these men experienced repentance. Nineveh eventually returned to its evil and wickedness and it was judged by God but this generation this generation to which Jonah was sent is going to be represented in his kingdom because God used the imperfect proclamation of truth to turn their nation to himself but here is Jesus' point if the wicked people of Nineveh will repent because of the preaching of Jonah why will you not repent when one greater than Jesus, Jonah is here before you? 
So it's a clear message to proclaim that we have. And then I want us to see that the work of God is seeing hearts turn. We see that in verses five through nine in this passage. The work of God is what I want to focus on. There's this obedient, simple message priest and then God does the work. The people of Nineveh believe God. They call for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and he sat in ashes. And then the depths that he goes to for this repentance, he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. But by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. So it's not enough that the, the, the people are fasting. They're going to make their animals fast. One of the contrasts is to, to Jonah chapter 1. When he hears this message from God, he goes down. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down to the ship. He goes down in the ship. And then he eventually goes down in the water. Jonah is getting away from God and going down. But there's something different that's happening here. This king is going down. These are all acts of submission, of deeper and deeper submission. He, he takes off his royal robe, a sign of submission. He covers himself with sackcloth. He sits in ashes. He fasts and he tells his people to fast. He's going down, down as low as he can get before this God who he, whom he's been overwhelmed by. And not only the people again, but the animals. I think of my, my beloved Bella, our dog. I can think of possibly fasting, but I'm going to tell you something. I like to sleep. I'm not sure if I'm going to make my dog fast. But these people, they didn't, that, this is the depths that they went to, the, the depths of their repentance. So I want us to see how God works here. Not only in the preaching, but, but the fear of judgment is at work here. The fear of judgment. I want you to think, some people are natural proclaimers of the gospel. They have no problem sharing the gospel at the drop of a hat. They see opportunities all the time. Most of us, I would presume, don't fall into that category. We may struggle with that. What keeps us from witnessing? What causes us to, to shrink back? Donald Whitney says this, the seriousness of evangelism is the main reason it frightens us. We realize that in talking with someone about Christ, heaven and hell are at stake. The eternal destiny of a person looms before us. And even when we rightly believe that the results of this encounter rest in God's hands and that we bear no accountability for the person's response to the gospel, we still sense a solemn duty to communicate the message faithfully as well as a holy dread of saying or doing anything that might rise as a stumbling block to this person's solution. Are you identifying with that as much as I am? The struggle, the fear that can creep in when we, when we think about sharing the gospel with someone? I want you to turn with me just over to John chapter 10, verses 7 through 11. Excuse me, John chapter uh, 15, verses 7 16. Oh, get this right. John chapter 16. 
Jesus is speaking about the coming Holy Spirit that is going to come after he's gone and what that's going to mean for his believers. John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, first of all, I just want you to be encouraged today that when you share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ with people, you're not alone. And it's not dependent upon your skills. You're being obedient, you're being a vessel of God, and the Spirit of God is going to do the work. Jesus says when he comes, it's important whenever you share the gospel, not um, that you're, you're not, not only to know that you're not alone, but that you're not even primary in that process. You're not the primary factor. So he talks about three things here. This threefold conviction by the Holy Spirit. The things that the Holy Spirit is doing when we're sharing the simple truth of the gospel. Number one is a a conviction of sin because men don't believe me this is a reminder that it's only one sin that's going to send you to hell and that's the sin of unbelief now that causes us to ask then why all these other sins are listed especially in the Pauline epistles in the New Testament but all of these sins flow from the sin of unbelief belief in Christ as Lord and Savior and that equals the presence of the Holy Spirit and it equals the putting away of sin from the inside out. But conversely, if there is no belief, if there's a, a mouth-only conversion, a, an intellectual assent to God, but not a confession and a giving of everything we are to him in faith, it's going to result in the, this accommodation of sin in our life. It's going to result in toleration and even a love of sin. So, so there's no deep grace no cheap grace involved in that so the holy spirit convicts of sin the holy spirit jesus tells us also will convict of righteousness a better way of understanding there might be to say of self-righteousness so when jesus comes we saw true righteousness in jesus christ we saw it contrasted to the righteousness of the pharisees and we see it contrasted to our own righteousness but after this ascension, after Jesus goes back to heaven, the Spirit came and the Spirit will point to Christ and say, you are not as righteous as Jesus. That's the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. You're a sinner and no matter how you stack up, no matter how you compare to your neighbor, you're separated from a holy God. So that's the conviction of righteousness. Now, now here's the other thing that I really want us to focus in on today. He says also of judgment. There is a conviction of judgment. So when you speak of hell, when you talk of the reality of hell, of that certain judgment, the Holy Spirit says that up to the person that if, if you buy into the lies of Satan, if you buy into what 
He is telling you, you will receive the same judgment that has been reserved for him in the future, and that is hell. So I want us to be clear today that it's the Holy Spirit that convicts. No matter how polished our words are, or our presentation, it's the Holy Spirit that convicts. And that, that keeps us from having pride, and it also reassures us in our, in our witness. It makes, the Holy Spirit makes the sin of unbelief and the emptiness of self-righteousness and the reality of hell all come alive in the hearts of people. That's what is turning a, a dead soul into a, a live soul through the power of the Spirit. So you're not alone when you witness to people. God puts his words in your mouth and the Holy Spirit convicts. And not only that, but God uses circumstances. He uses circumstances in people's lives. Here's the way this worked in Jonah. Why would a whole city turn? It's the powerful proclaiming of the gospel, but also... In 763 BC, there, there was a, a total eclipse in that part of the world, a total eclipse. Very unusual circumstance. It's the kind of thing that would have gotten a people's attention because they didn't know it was coming until it was there. Everything goes dark. That can be unsettling. A few years later, 759 BC, plagues come. A few years later, 755, 755 to 753 BC, more plagues come. God is working and getting their attention through the circumstances of their life. Uh, we know, do you remember we said that, that uh, sometime back that, that Jonah prophesied in the, in the time of Jeroboam and he was instrumental in Jeroboam expanding the, the kingdom. Um, these plagues, this weakening of Assyria were a direct cause of the opportunity for Jeroboam to do that. The, the fact that the enemy in another country, they're going through a hard time, they're having plagues, it, it's the prime opportunity to expand and reclaim some land. One person says that the plagues could have been used by God to alert the people to their need. And certainly when combined with the word of the Spirit of God being proclaimed through Jonah before and through his prophet, there is sufficient cause of a great repentance recorded. Here's the bottom line. God was going ahead of Jonah. God was doing things. And then God was putting Jonah in that circumstance to proclaim this message. And he does no less in your life and my life. These plagues, people are dying. People are, can't go outside. Your enemy is taking the land that, that's moving toward you. And your mystical mind wonders what this eclipse means. But something is going on, you say. What is, what is happening? And then... Along comes this probably emaciated prophet. And you think only a, a desperate person would come into our city and proclaim this message. God is going to destroy you, the prophet says, in 40 days. And we see this unconditional mercy begging repentance. Repentance. So what does this mean for us? It means God uses circumstances to prepare people in your life to hear his message. God is preparing people right now through circumstances in your life to hear his message. And this is why we don't shrink back. We have the truth. 
We have the Spirit and we have a God who is working in circumstances. And lastly, just an an overwhelming compassion that we see in the last verse. God's message seems to be absolute. 40 days, the city is going to be overthrown. But really, it's conditional. God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck it up and break down and destroy it, And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do. What a wonderful promise. Do you know know what God is saying? If you repent, if you turn to me, I'll show you mercy. If you repent, if you turn to me today and you don't know me, God says, and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll have mercy and you'll have life. Is it too late for you? Is it too late for the one whom your feelings tell you there's no hope in, your li- in their lives? They've gone too far. I've tried to share the gospel with this person and they've been cruel back to me. No, God promises that repentance leads to mercy. If he can change the hearts of the people in Nineveh, he can change any heart. So if I had a working title at the beginning of this message, I didn't give it to you today, but it was a message that cannot fail. This message that Jonah gives, it cannot fail. Why can it not fail? Because God will accomplish his purposes. He is going to save whom he chooses to save. The question for the believer today is, will he do this through me? Or will he do this in spite of me? God loves people. He loves unlovable people. That's why we see this reference to this pagan city as that great city. It was great in the eyes of God. God God even loves your enemies. I want you to think about that. How, how How many times we tend to classify people, we put them into enemies as if someone is against me. And yet God commands his children to go and proclaim truth to his enemies. And an omnipotent God is able to use his word with us as proclaimers of his word. He's able to use his spirit. He's able to use these unusual circumstances to save people. Lastly, I would say that you and I, we we tend to make excuses for why we can't witness, why we can't be God's vessels. Why someone else is better for this than we are. I shared a little bit of my story last week and I just just want to share a little bit more with you about how God was doing that, how he was closing me in until I turned totally in submission to him and his call on my life. But I went on a, a, a mission trip. I'd never been on a, I'd never been out of the country and I went on a mission trip several years ago uh, it's been quite a while ago now and I was just a guy doing his job out in the world to be quite honest with you my idea of witnessing was for the very most part giving someone a track and inviting someone to church but God was doing some things in my life and I was beginning to share my faith and he was, he was teaching me about that and, and I felt compelled to go on this mission trip so we went with uh, and partnered with an organization in this Central American country. And the team that we were on 
had a, a group of people who were pastoral students at one of our seminaries. And I'm not going to say the name of the seminary, but it had the word Southeastern in it. And um, so we were partnered with them. And you know a mission, I don't, if you've been on a short-term mission trip, you go and everything is planned out, but it never goes completely according to plan, right? That's part of the mission trip. That's where you're depending on God. And the last day of the trip, we were going to go, th- this city had six million people in it. So we were going to a park that was in, that, in the middle of that city to, to preach gospel messages, like preach for 10 to 12 minutes. There would be an opportunity for a response, not a say this prayer response, but an opportunity for people to express response and connect them with a local church and to, to deal with those people after that. So the way it would work was they were going to do about this, this about six times during the day. Someone would preach that short evangelical sermon and uh, then, then you would deal with that response. Uh, preacher guys from seminary were a part of our team. Did I mention that? From that particular seminary. And uh, the leader of them came up to me the day before and he said, hey, would you like to, to share tomorrow? Would you like to preach? And I was like, who are you talking to, you know? And uh, I said, why don't you let your guys who are preacher guys do that, who are training to be pastors? That would be good for them, not me. He said, well, okay, but you don't know what, what would happen. Could I put you down just as a backup? And I was like, yeah, sure. And I thought, I'm good. That night, we were going to bed, and he said, hey, we got our lineup set. Just pray for our guys. And I said, I'm really good now. The next morning, we were getting on the bus to go to the park, and he walked up to me and he said, one of our guys backed out. You're up third today. Oh, boy. So uh, God put me in a circumstance where I felt totally, I cannot tell you the inadequacy that I felt in that moment. But he equipped me to say what I needed to say that day. I'm sure I stumbled. I'm sure that just like today, I misspoke some words. But God gave me scripture. Uh, we were, I will remember this. I, I, I remember this. We were standing in a park, and right behind it was this huge Catholic church. Large Catholic presence there. And what we knew that was that these people uh, basically led hedonistic lifestyles and then went to the church to do penance and give. They were poor people, but they were giving all that. It, it was religious oppression is what it was. And they were depending on that to somehow give them peace with God and there was no peace. And I was able to say to them that day that your works that you do in that place will never give you place, but I know the Jesus that will. And he gave me that. He equipped me to say that. And he honored his word. I say that to you not to say, well, that should be your experience, but this is what I do know. Your experience will be that you will have opportunities to proclaim the gospel to people who don't know Jesus, who don't have any hope, and you will feel inadequate. But you are not alone. The Spirit of God dwells in you, and He will equip you. The question is will He work through you, or will He work in spite of you? As Mitch comes, I'd like you, if you're a believer, to. Consider today writing down a couple of names, even in your notes. I'd like you to commit to to pray for these people. And not only that, but to pray for opportunities to share 
the hope of Jesus and pray for the spirit to offer to work in their lives in conviction of sin and of righteousness and of judgment and then I want you to act on that today and if you today are saying yeah I'm one of those people I've been trying to get that peace through all of these other ways and I don't have peace you can know him you can know him today we're going to have a time of response and here's how our time of response works it's a time for you to answer what God has spoken to you through his word today and myself or any of our elders would love to talk with you and here's the thing about Trace when we say amen at our benediction in a few minutes people aren't flying out the doors we're right here if you want to talk about what God is doing in your life and what you need him to do in your life if you just need, need a friend somebody that you know loves Jesus to talk with you don't leave here without doing that I ask you today let's pray Father because of your people your love for your people and your ability to convict help us to make the most of chances chance after chance because it's the gospel that saves us from sin and keeps people from perishing Lord, we practice a rhythm, a liturgy when we come together here and worship. As we sing, as we pray, as we give, as we proclaim, it's all pointed to you, but may a part of the liturgy of our daily lives as believers be worshiping you through sharing the only hope that we have. Repentance and faith and belief in, belief in Jesus. I just want to thank you today, Lord, for using the inadequate as a sign of your great power and mercy and grace. And I pray that in these next few moments that you would work in the hearts of believers and that you would bring dead souls to life by the power of the gospel. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, let's stand. Sing in response to God's word this morning. Amen.